0: I can imagine that uh, that was a sweet sound to the Lord to hear his people saying together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. I pray that he is here with us and over us and working in us and uh, revealing himself to us this morning. This may seem a little strange, but... um, As I thought about preaching this morning on this passage, uh, a funeral came to mind. (laughs) Um, I've done a few, and uh, they've all been different. Obviously, the circumstances are always different. Families are always different. Um, But I say a couple of things every time I do a funeral. The first is that they are not for the benefit of the deceased, they're for the benefit of the living. Because those who are there actually can respond to whatever it is we're going to talk about, think about, pray about. Death brings us face to face with reality like nothing else. I mean, you've, you've sat there and you're confronted with mortality. And it's, it's sobering, it causes us to to take stock in life. Uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 7.2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. I love how Mark Buchanan writes about death. He says, Death, carefully pondered, resolutely faced, actually loses its grip on us. It's deadlock on our imaginations. It can reawaken holy wonder. We learn to cherish those things we often take for granted. And the temporary things of this world we often desperately seek after become to us nothing. I suspect it's no coincidence that Isaiah, when describing the most transformative event of his life, marks it with a death. The chapter begins with reference to the death of a king in the year that King Uzziah died. I think this king meant a lot to Isaiah. He was the king throughout Isaiah's early life. Like when he was born, the king was Uzziah. And he grew up in that. Uh, he probably served under King Uzziah as a scribe before he actually became a prophet. And King Uzziah was a great king until the end of his life. The story is uh, recorded in 2 Chronicles 26, and prior to this moment, he led Judah to a time of great security and great prosperity, almost unlike any time uh, except back to David and Solomon, back in those days. But his story ends in tragedy. Let me read this to you, Uh, beginning in verse 16. When he, that is Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. "'For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God "'and entered the temple of the Lord "'to burn incense on the altar of incense. "'But Azariah the the priest went in after him "'with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, "'and they withstood King Uzziah, "'and said to him, "'It is not for you, Uzziah, "'to burn incense to the Lord, "'but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, "'who are consecrated to burn incense.'" "'Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, "'and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God.'" Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense.'" And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And behold, he was leprous in his forehead. The chapter goes on to explain that he was struck by the Lord. He was given that because of his pride. Because he felt like he could do whatever he wanted to do in the presence of the Lord. As a result, he was excluded from the house of the Lord. He couldn't go back to the temple. He was excluded from the house of his family. He could no longer be with them. He essentially had to go outside of town and live with lepers. And he did so for 10 years. Had to yield his position as king to his son Jotham for 10 years. He had to live outside the camp. The sickness and death of Uzziah is a timely reminder of how fragile and limited humanity truly is. And it's so easy to forget. His condition is a fitting portrait of Judah's spiritual condition, which we've been looking at as we've gone through the first five chapters of Isaiah. We've been seeing the position that they're in, full of pride, full of independence, full of rebellion. They are going their own way and God, in his kindness, is confronting them with a prophet, Isaiah. And today, we get to hear about the call of Isaiah into his ministry. And it's gonna happen in the presence of a king. One writer said this, after seeing the earthly king die, that is King Uzziah, Isaiah saw the heavenly king reign. Love that. So after witnessing what he did and what we're going to study today in Isaiah 6, I think Isaiah would say four things to us, and that's going to be our outline for this morning. I think the first thing that Isaiah would say as a result of what he experienced In the presence of God, he would say, God is greater than you ever imagined. And I'll be honest with you, I feel some fear about this morning because we've probably read Isaiah 6 and we certainly just sang about it. It's it's very familiar and I want to ask you to break through whatever familiarity you might have with this passage or with whatever it says about God and in a very fresh way. Follow Isaiah into the presence of God. I, I have to confess to you, as I finished up 2016, I, I honestly felt some complacency, some spiritual apathy. I, I felt a little bit like I was coasting on 30 years of being a Christian. And that's a bad sign, <laughs> Because we can't live on the past. It's like we were created by God to have fresh encounters with him every single day and then to live out of that. Not to live out of what happened last week, last year, or uh, 20 years ago. And so I've been very convicted by this, that I need to freshly go into the temple with Isaiah in the presence of God and have an encounter with him. Here's what Isaiah said happened for him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with Two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I wonder if Isaiah experienced a little bit of what Paul describes in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Remember this? Now we see in a mirror dimly. It's like looking through a fog, but then face to face. Now I know in part, Paul says, but then, when I'm in the presence of God, Paul says, then I shall fully know even as I have been fully known. I think that's what Isaiah experienced here. There was no dimness, there was no fog, just absolute clarity. We all go through life with impaired vision, and this helps us at least imagine more of what God is like. Look at what Isaiah saw. First of all, he saw the Lord. Not many folks have been able to do that and lived but he gets to come into the presence of God. And and though the Lord really isn't described in in detail, he knows that he saw him. He he, He knows that he was face to face with him. He saw him high and exalted, full of authority, power, unlike anything on earth, and and that's the strain of this, is that we are limited by what we have seen. Even our imagination doesn't even begin to approach reality. He's high, lifted up, above and beyond anything that you could possibly conceive of. The train of his robe filled the temple like we see throne rooms and royalty, kings and all that kind of stuff. And just imagine it's it's full of God. Not just stuff, not just trinkets and robes and thrones and that kind of it's God filling the temple. Splendor. Majesty. And then he mentions seraphim. I think this is the only place they're mentioned in the Old Testament. It comes from the Hebrew word seraph, which literally means to burn. So, like something burning, glowing. With six wings, strange, covers their face, covers their feet, and then flies with two. I, I, it was funny, I kind of Googled that just to see what's out there, and you know, people came up with all kinds of different stuff. But, but, but these angelic beings have one purpose, and that is to magnify the Lord. They attend to him and nothing else. It is their sole purpose for existence. And they say to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth, not just the temple. The whole earth is full of his glory. As Chris mentioned earlier, that's the only instance in all of the Old Testament where those three words are put together like that. And really, it's, it, the only reason that it's there is because there's no other way to even try to say what they're trying to say. It is similar to a reference in the Revelation 4-8 where John was describing heaven, the temple of the Lord, He says, four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The intent is to describe the indescribable magnitude of God's holiness with an emphatic triplet. Uh, Some commentators call it a super superlative. Do you kind of get the feeling here? It's like we don't know what to say so we just say it over and over again to try and begin to approach the holiness of God. What is holiness? There's a lot out there written And I think if you began reading or studying, you would find how frustrated we become when we try to define it. But I want to read some things to you that I think will help. They've certainly helped me. A.W. Tozer writes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, we cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Professor Bob Diffenbaugh says this. This was, I love this. I'm going to spend some time thinking about this at the beginning of 2017 to shake me out of my complacency. The holiness of God is the incomparable, listen to these words, unrivaled, unfathomable, Collective and awe inspiring excellence of God. Unequaled in quality, so excellent, outstanding, or unique as to have no equal. Impossible to compare with something else because there is no basis for comparison. That is awesome. Kenneth Pryor says this holiness is the sum total of all attributes perfectly possessed by God. A master attribute which includes all other attributes combined in their perfection. You see we talk about holiness as if it's one more thing that's true about God. When in reality holiness is all that's true about God. He is holy perfect, holy, wise, holy, powerful, holy, good, holy, just. Get the picture. It, it modifies everything about him and yet is still beyond our comprehension. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Isaiah encounters when he walks into the temple of God. He was confronted with the greatness of God beyond anything he ever imagined and it defines how he talks about God for the rest of his book. It's interesting, uh, he uses the title the Holy One of Israel to speak of God 25 times in the book of Isaiah. It only appears seven times in the rest of the Old Testament. Do you think he was marked by what he saw? by what he heard, by what he experienced. Commentator J. Alec Motyer says this, the whole of the Isaiahic literature has a theology of holiness exactly as if it all depended on the truth enunciated in chapter 6. In other words, all of Isaiah is straining to help Israel and then us as readers to understand what is described in this short chapter. That is the purpose of the book. Now here's one thing for sure. The more clearly we see God for who he truly is, holy, the more we will clearly see ourselves For who we truly are. And that's a painful thing to see. Listen to what Isaiah says about himself after he encounters the holiness of God Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. He knew a great king, King Uzziah, the greatest king since David. Full of leprosy, dead in his pride. But now he's seen the king of kings the Lord of hosts. And he assumes he's done. I love the way uh, Eugene Peterson translates this passage. He said, doom, it's doomsday. I'm as good as dead. Every word I've ever spoken is tainted, blasphemous even. And the people I live with talk the same way using words that corrupt and desecrate. And here I've looked God in the face, the king, God of the angel armies. Here's the second thing I think Isaiah would say to us. You are more sinful than you ever dared believe. Now some of you, that may hurt your feelings. You may think, you know, in our world of high self-esteem that that's just a little bit too harsh. And I would just say to you, listen to Isaiah. Because that's as close to reality as you will ever get in understanding your true condition apart from God. Listen to what some others said when they encountered the living God. Job, he had some conversations with the Lord. He said, I had heard of you. This is in Job 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, he sees that like, he doesn't belong in the presence of holiness. He's only allowed to exist there. Simon Peter with the Lord in Luke 5.8 says, when Simon Peter saw it, the Lord was doing, he fell down at Jesus' feet. This is after the the Lord says fish on the other side and he pulls up a huge thing of fish and, he, and then he starts connecting the dots. Oh, <laughs> this is God. He says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then in Revelation 1, John, Apostle John is ushered into the presence of God and he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead but (laughs) he laid his right hand on me saying fear not i am the first and the last and the living one i died and behold i am alive forevermore and i have the keys of death and hades When we see God for who he really is, we see how far short we truly are. And honestly, I, I honestly don't think we can conceive of the gulf that exists between an infinite, holy God and anything else in all of creation. So, see, the comparisons that we make are are with the stuff that's around us so the proximity is just it's just there it's right there but the difference between god a holy god and everything else is infinite a finite flawed human being cannot truly encounter the lord without being overcome with humility God's holy presence dismantles pride and replaces it with awe. Another word the scriptures use is fear. I'd say uh, Isaiah is feeling some fear, wouldn't you? How many times have you experienced this? How often do you find yourself so overcome with fear who God is and what He is like and how so unlike God you are that you are just without words. If that that hasn't been a big part of your experience, then I would say, put yourself into Isaiah 6 a little more frequently and, and beg the Lord to reveal Himself to you. So that you can see him and yourself for who you really are. Wherever you find apathy or callousness towards sin, and I've had seasons of that in my own life, you are sure to find a stunted vision of God. Because when we see God, then we see our sinfulness and we are moved to contrition, to confession. God's holiness demands that he deal with sin and he deals with it beautifully in Isaiah's life. Look at what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Isaiah says, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. Remember he said I'm a man of unclean lips. Takes the coal, he touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Without a word, without a plea, there's no negotiating. God simply, with his gracious initiative, takes away his sin. Just like that. It's symbolic. He has a hot coal from an altar. He touches his lips and he says, you're forgiven. But, But all of that is intended to show God's ability to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And he doesn't wait for Isaiah to ask. He just does it. He makes him clean. The burning coal is taken from an altar. The, at that altar, that is a place of sacrifice. And I love where Jeff went earlier with communion. We have all these amazing pictures in the Old Testament that help us anticipate the final sacrifice. But, but don't miss it. When you speak of atonement, you speak of paying a price. And even in Isaiah's day, that price was as good as paid. Jesus had not yet come to earth, lived, died, buried, rose again. That hadn't happened yet, but it's as good as it had happened. Because the Lord says, your iniquity is taken away. You're atoned for. The price is paid. Beautiful, beautiful picture of substitutionary atonement, sacrifice made by one who could pay the price we could never pay. John Oswalt says this, this moment speaks of the depths of God's grace. Isaiah does not plead for mercy, nor does he make great vows if God will deliver him. All the evidence makes it appear that he considers his case Hopeless. In fact, think about this. He's in the presence of God. He sees fire around, and then he sees a hot coal coming his way in uh, the the tongs of the seraphim, right? And as a good prophet, he knows that anytime fire is coming your way, you're dead. That's what he expects. So what a surprise. That the Lord, instead of wiping him out, would say, you're forgiven. Out of the smoke comes a seraph with a purifying coal. Here's the key. God does not reveal himself to destroy us, but rather to redeem us. Now, if Isaiah's experience were to end there it would actually be very much like North American Christianity where there is an overemphasis upon conversion. Like we would go, he's forgiven. We're all done, he goes to heaven and everything's great. But that's not where it ends. It continues. Conversion leads to calling. Look at verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Now the Lord's going to speak up. He's cleansed his servant. And the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Wow. And I love this. Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Can I go? Like, will I do? The Lord says, yeah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That is the strangest commission you will ever find in the Bible. Because you would think he would say, send me. And he's like, let me tell you. Everywhere you go, you're just going to drop the gospel on people and they are going to do backflips and come to Christ. It's going to be awesome, like arena revival. But the Lord says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to be a messenger of judgment. Because the people that you speak to are gonna reject your message. They don't want any part of me, the Lord says. But you are called nonetheless. And the Lord expects that he will be faithful to his call regardless of the response. So here's the third thing Isaiah I think would say to us. Your spiritual cleansing catapults you into your ministry assignment. There is no such thing as conversion that leads to observation. Like where you just kind of sit and watch. No, your conversion leads to calling. And it's different for all of us because we're all gifted differently. We have different stories and experiences and backgrounds and all that stuff. But we are all called. I love that uh, the Trinitarian reference here, who will go for us? And I don't think that's gymnastics with the text. I think that is certainly a reference. Uh, Just write these two down, John 12, 41. John writes that Isaiah saw Christ. He he quotes this, this passage here. And says that that Isaiah saw Christ. And then Acts 28, 25 is a reference to the Holy Spirit using the same passage. So certainly all of the Godhead has both cleansed and called this prophet. And the calling, the commission is confusing to us. Because why would you preach if people would not respond? But but that's sort of a limited perspective because the preaching isn't only to those in the immediate time frame for Isaiah. But here we are, a few thousand years later, still reading the gospel in Isaiah. And we're responding. Many have come to Christ as a result of what Isaiah wrote. Even those things... Related to judgment. One writer said this It is not our task to tell people what they want to hear. We must tell them what in some sad future time they would wish they had heard. Our faithfulness to proclaim the gospel vindicates the mercy of the Lord. Because he can say, You knew. You heard, you saw. We are faithfully called to deliver the mail and leave the results to God. And the fourth thing that Isaiah would say, with that in mind, is that God's truth will heal some and harden others. And that is totally out of our control. Like We literally are just messengers. Now, we can do a better or worse job delivering the mail, right? If a mailman just throws your mail on the driveway, he's not doing a great job. But if he gets it in the mailbox, then from that point on, it's on you. The same goes for us. And for Isaiah, it prompted a question. And I, I, hear, I hear grief. I hear love and affection. I, I think he cared about the people of Israel and all who would be on the receiving end of his message. So he says, Lord, how long? How long will people reject this message? And the Lord says, until cities We have to remember that we're in the book of Isaiah, which is a book of conviction, in some ways condemnation to a people who had rebelled against God. But, But again and again, I hope that you've heard this in the first five chapters, and I hope you see it again here. There is always this beautiful word of hope. The last phrase, the holy seed is its stump. In all of the desolation. God preserves his seed, which was promised in Genesis and which would later come in Christ. It's promised here, and that will fulfill the redemptive intentions of God. Let me ask you a few questions. I hope this has been helpful and I hope that you will return to this chapter again and again and again to see God for who he really is to see yourself for who you really are and to see the beautiful work of redemption that he accomplishes in the lives of his people where does your vision lack clarity where do you need to see things more in terms of reality than you do right now? I want you to take a moment and just think through these, these uh, topics of God, of self, cleansing, calling, results of ministry. Think about all of those and ask the Lord, where do I need greater clarity in light of your holiness?